John chapter 3 and verse number 5, and I want to read that verse as well as one other. We had a relatively brief section this morning anyway, but I want to read two verses there once again for us. Verse number 5, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Then looks down to verse number 8. It says here, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So with those two thoughts in mind, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll look into this. Father, thank you for your love, and thank you for the privilege that we have of uh, moving deeper and deeper now into this Christmas season and each day seemingly able to experience more of your blessing as we call these truths to mind, as we uh, have fi- time for family, friends, gift-giving, and all of these things, Lord. May, may in it all we be drawn to you and be, uh, have full hearts at how good you've been to us to give us yet another Christmas season and health and strength to be with family, be with friends, and to enjoy all the many things that are a part of our traditions and a part of what we're able to derive from your word. And we thank you, too, for this gathering today on the last Sunday before Christmas. And thank you for the special uh, work that was put into it so that we might have the little program uh, even in the morning time, the special things that the young people added to the service. Thank you for all of that. And now, Lord, as we look into your word and conclude our Christmas uh, uh, Christmas series for this year, I pray that this message will also be used of you and be a blessing to every listener here today. Thank you, Father, that you know us for who we are. You know our downsitting, our uprising. You understand our thoughts afar off. And from this, Lord, we know that you know everything about us, so you know exactly what we need here today. And you're certainly able to work by the working of the Holy Spirit to take the things that I say, uh, even though I have no idea, and apply them uh, to hearts and lives exactly as they need to be. Especially, Lord, if there'd be anybody here today lacking assurance or not knowing Jesus Christ as personal Savior, what a great privilege it would be to see that person awaken to that today and drawn to the Savior. And we would give you praise for that. And if we could be used to see someone saved today, we would account that the highest treasure. And so would you just bless now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, we are concluding this three-part series uh, on Christmas this year, Why Jesus Came. And if you think about it, there are several good statements in the Gospels that Jesus himself made as to why he came into the world. I think of one of my favorite verses. It is my favorite verse in Mark's Gospel, but Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man, Jesus is saying this now, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And what else? To give his life a ransom for many. So this is Jesus himself expressing why he came into this world. I love what he told Zacchaeus, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. So it's not that we don't have statements in the Gospels, but what's really neat, and we understand this idea of progressive revelation, that the more revelation we get, the more it builds, the more it adds. So when you get to the epistles, you find some pretty well-developed statements about this and some really interesting information. We started off with probably the most well-known of such statements, and also the most general. So when Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul went on to add, of whom I am chief. So Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
And if I were asking you, why, why did Christ come? Probably that's something like that's what you would have come up with. You would have probably have come up with something like he came to die on the cross for our sins. And that's exactly what Paul tells us in that verse. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so that's probably the most general of the statements and maybe the most well-known. But that message was salvation one. And then the next week, which was last week, we were looking at something to get us a little further down the road in our understanding. Um, How exactly is this accomplished that Christ saves sinners? We have a general statement saying that he came to save sinners, but what about the nuts and bolts? What about getting the heavy lifting done? How, how did that happen? How is it that Christ was able to uh, satisfy the justice of God and the displeasure and wrath of God for our sins and reconcile us to God in order that we might have sins forgiven and have a home in heaven? So we were looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, where we discovered the subject of propitiation. But before we ever got to propitiation, it talks a lot about the incarnation. So you can't go to the cross unless you first come into the world. And so the incarnation precedes, which we think of especially at Christmas time. But then the idea of propitiation, it carries with it the idea of to placate or to satisfy. And I mentioned one of the things about this liberal theologians don't like that word so much because then this seems to conjure up ideas that God uh, is a God who is angry and has displeasure and wrath against sin. But the Bible presents God in that manner. Uh, Certainly, I think it helps us to understand more about God's love when we realize just how unlovely we are and how much we merit God's displeasure and God's judgment to know that he loved us and and would send his son to die on the cross for our sins. And so that's what we discovered in propitiation done in that message from Hebrews chapter 2. Now, the last thing I want to talk to you about today, I'll call this message, message Sin Undone. And what we're doing is, here's kind of an interesting thought. So we move from the most general to something that's more specific in Hebrews chapter 2, now to something that's practical, very, very practical. Because it's important to know doctrinal terms like propitiation and justification and redemption and all of that. We should know what we believe. It's important to know doctrine. We should know what we believe. No apologies for teaching that and using those words. But the Bible never stops there. I mean, anybody can go to school and learn facts. And you can certainly do that with the Bible. You can learn many facts about the Bible, and you can certainly learn theological definitions and all that kind of thing. We should do that. We should have an understanding of the Bible, but the Bible never designs to stop there. The Bible always wants to tell us, what does that really mean? What's that look like? What's the outworking of this doctrine? And that's what we're going to be looking at today because we see two things revealed in these verses. Did you notice those two verses I read each gave a reason that Jesus comes. So for example, verse 5, it says, ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So to take away our sins, we're going to call that forgiveness. We're going to talk about two things today, two practical reasons that Jesus came. Forgiveness, to offer forgiveness to us, to make forgiveness possible. So you have that in verse 5. Then in verse number 8, Um, If you look at that, it says, For this purpose was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. And again, since we're attempting to be as practical as possible here, I'm just going to put the word victory on that. 
Because everybody here today who is saved and who enjoys a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you know you're a child of God, you know your sins have been forgiven, but don't we all struggle with temptation? And at times we struggle with victory. But this verse says Christ was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. I like that. I'm looking forward to the day when he gets his final comeuppance. But anyway, I, so we're going to talk about that a little bit here today, both of those points. Forgiveness. And as it turns out in these two statements, this is the first one, but it's kind of interesting to notice how it's phrased in the verse. It says, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. Doesn't use the word forgiveness. But that's what it really amounts to is forgiveness. That's the practical term of what's involved here, although I want to go a little deeper into it. First, though, I want to say I can't imagine a sweeter thing than forgiveness. I don't know how many people have just gotten so far away from it. Of course, even as Christians, there are times we need forgiveness, right? But sometimes I think we get so far away from it and we forget what an awful feeling it was to bear that burden and bear that load. Once we've come to the realization and the Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts and we realize that we've done something wrong. And this could be in another walk of life. I mean, maybe not something that we're thinking that we directly did against God, but maybe we've done something wrong to our fellow man or something of that nature. And boy, when you really see the mess you've made and you really see the wrong of what it is that you've done, you feel a tremendous load and guilt as a result of that. So to me, I think that this is one of the sweetest words and this is one of the most wonderful things that we have to talk about when we talk about Christianity. In fact, I take you back about 30 years to um, something that John Stott, the English evangelical, pointed out. He was pointing out the fact that um, one of the foremost secularists, secular humanists and atheists uh, in, uh, in the world and a novelist to boot, that he, he called attention to a television interview in which this woman had been interviewed. Her name was Marganita, uh, Marganita Lasky. And she made a profound statement. You should listen to it. Here's what she said. She said, what I, and this is a woman who's an, agno, who's, a, who's an atheist and who's a secular humanist, and yet she makes this startling admission. She said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, I know people who won't, and they live a sad existence. That's the worst position you can find yourself in because then you're just eaten up with anger and bitterness all the time, and you not only destroy yourself, but you're a blight to people around you. But I have great thanks that even though we all live in a world of imperfect people and there are times when you encounter people who won't forgive, I know someone who does forgive always freely and fully. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a wonderful thing. Now, back to what's a little bit more than just under the, the surface here. He was manifested to take away our sins. So it doesn't use the word forgiveness. It uses the idea of to take away our sins. And if we're really thinking and meditating on this, this begins to present a contrast to us. Something that's true now but wasn't true in the Old Testament economy. Because do you remember a statement that the writer to the Hebrews, if you want to know all about this, you read Hebrews. But 
One of the statements that the writer to the Hebrews makes, and he makes this in chapter 10, verse 4, when he says, For it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Then what was the blood of bulls and goats doing with our sin? Covering it. Covering it. Not taking it away. In fact, this is one of the great points that you read in the book of Hebrews where he talks about the fact that because of this, each year when the Day of Atonement came around, then it had to be done again in a year. And, and by this continual sacrifice, the writer tells us and uses this word, there is remembrance of sin. And why is that? And that's simply because it's just not really fully, finally been done, dealt with in a way. So let me give you a simple, practical illustration. So let's say that uh, you spill some milk on the carpet at home. Well, you can go in there right away. I mean, I don't care how fast you are. You go in there right away and you blot that up, put water on it, and, you know, wool light or whatever, whatever else, that stuff we spray on there. What's that stuff called? Anyway, some kind of stain remover or something. But, you know... The truth of the matter is, since you've got that nice, you, you went to all that trouble to install that nice, thick pad under that carpet so that it would be nice to walk on. You might have gotten the milk out of the carpet, but the chances of the fact that you got it totally and completely out of that pad are not good, which means that after you go through this two or three times, you're still likely in the warm weather, or maybe even sooner than that, to get a smell. Something smells. Well, sour milk smells. And I'll tell you something else. Sin smells bad. So the fact that sin is not fully and finally done with is a concern, and it's a contrast because, and we heard several times in the Sunday school hour, this John one twenty nine quoted, where John the Baptist gave testimony to Jesus, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. He didn't say that covered the sin of the world. He said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now, there is a term for this, so if you want a, another term, here's the term for it. It's called expiation. And you don't so much find the word expiation in the King James Version of the Bible. You find propitiation. The two concepts are related. I do mention expiation. You, if you uh, consult other versions of the Bible on times to compare them or uh, watch for the sense or something like that, some translations will use expiation in certain verses. And the contrast that's drawn there is as follows. Propitiation is the idea, and we studied this last week, propitiation is the idea of placating or satisfying. In other words, it implies that there is judgment it implies that, that God is displeased with our sins and there is a penalty for our sins, which is what Christ was doing on the cross of Calvary, right? He was bearing that penalty for us. He suffered the wrath of God for us, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Paul tells us this. That's propitiation. What's expiation? Expiation is actually taking away removing the problem of sin. 
tell a little story. This, lots of ways you can illustrate this, but this particular one, as I thought about this week, this 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 week, and was meditating over it, I couldn't help but think, you know, years ago, our church there in Huntington, we were extraordinarily saddened by an event that took place. Some of you might even have heard of this, uh, and there's still plenty of news stories that you can Google on it. It's back quite a ways now. But there were was a couple that were in our church. Uh, the wife was actually local, somewhat local, and she'd married a, a man by the name of Doug Shepherd, and so it was Doug and Teresa Shepherd. And, and I think I'm fine to tell this story. I don't think anyone would, would have a problem with this, but they were missionaries in the Azores, right? And so Christmas time came one year of all the things to happen at Christmas, and one of their sweet little girls was on that airplane, and it was a connecting flight. I think it may have been out of Charlotte. And somehow they took off. Was it on the return flight or coming home? I, I don't recall, but they, 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 anyway, they took off out of Charlotte. I, I rather believe it may have been coming home, but I'm not sure. And somehow they had not, you know, these uh, prop, you know, these, these uh, prop jets that are sometimes used for commuters. And it was, I believe the flight was from Charlotte to Greenville or Greenville to Charlotte was how that deal it was just a short thing. It was one of those commuter planes. And somehow they had not really taken care to be certain that the bags, the weight in the plane were properly distributed. And the plane took off, it went to bank, and all of a sudden it fell out of the sky. And Christiana Shepherd lost her life. I'll tell you something, folks. Um, I could take you right now to the cemetery on Route 26 South, where she's buried. Every time I pass there, I think about that. And I have stopped on occasion and gone up in there and just thought to myself what that really is what that really means you know death is no respecter of persons if you read the obituaries on any kind of a regular basis there's old and there's young and there's in between time and chance happeneth to them all but there was no chance in that somehow that was just something that the Lord had and we don't understand those things they're way beyond us but as you can imagine in something like that I mean the airline yeah, they do their best, to, like Boeing, to, to cover. You know, they, they really, one of the last things they want to do is admit guilt because the moment they do that, then they, but they're, and so what they do is they settle with people and they offer usually large amounts of money to people to get them to settle. And when you settle, basically what that means is you've agreed to accept that money and absolve the airline of any further guilt in the sight of the law. Well, most people settled the shepherds did not. The shepherds did not settle for quite some time. And eventually, I believe they did, but I believe the reason they did not, there's a spiritual lesson in this. I think that they were aggrieved that the airline was not more forthcoming in admitting the wrong that they had done and making a, an appropriate apology, and perhaps that they had not necessarily set in motion uh, certain things to be certain that those types of mistakes did not happen again. Well, see, once someone ex accepts the money, that's expiation. 
They're absolved of guilt. It's taken away. In the sight of the law, you, you accept the $250,000 or whatever it is, and that absolves the airline. You sign some papers. The problem was there was no propitiation. They were aggrieved. They lost their daughter. You'd be aggrieved too. And ultimately, though, you know, we have to kind of resolve that God, there's many things in life that we don't ask for and that we don't desire, but they happen. And I think they came to accept that, but I think maybe some good was done in the fact that they held out that long. But that's the difference between propitiation and expiation. The day you take the money, expiation happens. But in the day that they've made peace with you and, and, and dealt with your anger against the wrong, the injury that you've, they've done to you, that's propitiation. And so this tells us something here. We have the contrast with the Old Testament that that was still there. It lingered. The bad smell of sin was there. But Jesus Christ was manifested to take away our sins. And now you know what? They're gone. They're forever gone. Do you know a woman by the name of Helen Griggs wrote a little chorus? This is, this is the best of the best. When you can write a children's chorus that simply teaches children some of the most profound truths that there are in the Bible. And you like that song. I won't try to lead us in it. But you know it, right? Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Now my soul is free and in my heart, the song. Buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally. Praise God, my sins are gone. And did you ever sing it? G-O-N-E, gone. I can't even get that on the right key. I'm with you, Gavin. But I tell you, it's a precious truth, isn't it, to know that those sins are forever dealt with and forever gone. Now, you, you might ask a question. Say, well, okay, I'm the curious type. So you say that, that Christ took away our sins. You say our sins are gone. Where? Do you really care as long as they're gone? But the Bible does give us some answers. All right, here's one answer. In Psalm 103, verse 2, it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? Can you figure the value of pi? No. I mean, you can get it close enough for what you're trying to do, but you're going to get 3.14 and it's just going to keep going. So if I start out of here and head west, I'll never get to the east because I'll always be going west. If I start out of here and head east, I'll never get to the west because I'll be always going east. I like that. You're never going to find them. Or... Here's another place the Bible gives an answer. In the book of Micah, here's a verse that might not be familiar, although she touched on it in her song. And in Micah chapter 7 and verse 19, it's right at the end of the chapter. 
It says this, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, buried in the deepest sea. Where's the deepest sea? You know that? Do you know? There is an answer to that. I mean, as far as we know, there's an answer to that. But you aren't going there. Because it's about seven miles deep in the, that particular part of the Marianas Trench. It's a big, long trench in that particular part, the deepest place that we know on earth. You want to know how deep seven miles of water is? Think about it this way. You can't see a thing. No light penetrates there. You can't live there. The pressure is 8,000 pounds per square inch. You wouldn't even have time to get hypothermia. The temperature is, hovers just above freezing at that place. But if you really want to know how deep seven miles is, you can drop Mount Everest in that, and it'll still be covered by more than a mile of water. Check it out. Man has been there so far as I know once. I don't know if there's any reason to go back, but the Trieste in the 60s was able to. They got down there and turned on lights to try to see what they could see, and the, the silt and so forth from being there were so stirred up that they didn't do much good with the thing. But you're not going there. It's unreachable. That's good enough for me. Yes, that's good enough for me. As far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea, I'd say those are pretty explicit metaphors for us to understand that they're not coming back anytime soon. This is the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. It cleanses and brings forgiveness for all sin. Well, we have a second thing to talk about. There's victory. And I think all of us struggle because we know that we claim to be forgiven and are forgiven if our profession of faith in Jesus Christ is a genuine profession, but we see lots of people who claim to be Christians, but they don't act like it. And John has something to say about that problem here, because John had to deal with it. As I've said to you many times, there's really nothing new. The devil doesn't have anything new. He just has different wrapping paper. So when we get to this problem that John was dealing with about people who claimed to be Christians but who went on living a lifestyle of sin, he's dealing with that. And he says in verse 6, Whosoever abideth in, in, in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now, have you ever read those verses before and thought to, thought to yourself, I'm in, a, I'm in trouble here. It says, Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Well, this is where it helps to understand a little bit of the grammar, where it uses the present tense, and, and the, the sense of that comes out something like this. Whosoever practices sin or goes on sinning hath not seen him, neither known him. Let no man deceive you, he goes on, little children. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. And then it goes on to say, even as he is righteous, the next verse, he that committeth sin, the person who goes on in the pattern of sin, is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. And then he tells us, for this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
Whosoever is born of God doth not go on sinning or go on practicing sin, for his seed, that is, what we have from God, remaineth in him, and he cannot go on sinning because he is born of God. I always like the story of, uh, this story has been told probably thousands of times, but some people argue back and forth about its authenticity. I don't think they can prove it isn't. I don't think I can prove it isn't, and I don't care because it's so true to life that it certainly would resemble something that might have happened. But the story goes something like this that, you know, I mentioned to you before in talking to you about Augustine that he was desperately running from the prayers of his mother, desperately trying to find out where there was any sense and meaning in life, and he he went to the arts, he didn't find it. He went to the philosophy, he didn't find it. He went to religion, he didn't find it. And he went to the sensual. So the story is told that one day Augustine was walking down the street and coming the other way was a woman with whom he had been involved before. And Augustine just kept right on going. And she was sort of dismayed by that and she turned around and called back to him. She said, Augustine, it is I. And he very briefly tucked his head and said this, Yes, but it is not I. Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Victory. He's come to destroy the works of the devil. See, the new birth affects a fundamental change in us so that sin is no longer our direction in life. I like the illustration that I encountered some time ago. Uh, of a man who was talking about this and seeking for a practical way for people to understand it. And so he asked this group of people a question. He said, well, let me ask you this. He said, uh, how many people here have ever roller skated before? Well, there's probably a good number of people here have roller skated before. It's been a good while since I have, and it's going to be a longer while till I do. <laughs> but Nevertheless, I mean, you know, when you're young and all that kind of stuff, and even we used to have roller skating. We used to rent the thing for the church and, and go there and so forth. I did it, I think, once until I fell out of that tree, and then I decided, okay, I falling, I've had my, put my time in with falling. But the man asked the question, all right, how many people here uh, roller skate? He said, did, did, did you ever fall when you first started to roller skate? Mm-hmm. Well, then, as you got better at it and did it more, did you fall as much? Well, no. (laughs) Then he asked him a third question. He said, professional skaters, do they ever fall? And the answer to that is not on TV. (laughs) But, yes, they do fall. But it's few and far between. But they do. What's that likened unto here? Well, you know what? When you first start out in your Christian life, you're plodding along, you fall some. And as you walk with the Lord and you go on and grow in grace, you fall less, but you do fall. And then if we really are serious about our Christian endeavor and we walk with the Lord, I hate to say we become professional Christians because I think we have too many of those now, but you understand the point that I'm making. We become more skilled in living the Christian life and more reliant on the Lord and understanding of how much we need his grace and we fall less but we still fall but that's not your direction in life in fact if you look back what you can say is what something similar to what Paul said you know I'm not what I once was 
by the grace of God, I am what I am, but I'm not what I once was. And I, I, I can see that. I know that. I praise the Lord for that. Why is that? Because he came to destroy the works of the devil. So it doesn't really matter what phase of sin you're talking about. You can talk about the past phase of sin, which is in its penalty, which he dealt with, as we've already seen on the cross of Calvary, because he came to take away our sins. Or you can talk about the present phase of it in the sense that we still have the old man and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He gives us power and grace and the ability to overcome that. Or you can talk about the future aspect when the prospect of sin or the presence of sin is gone forever. That'd be really great. I'll be glad to get to a time and place. I just assume do it in the rapture, but whatever happens, happens. But just as soon get to a time and place, it'll be a relief that that's not even a possibility anymore. Just like some of you were asking Wednesday night, that deer I hit Sunday night after church, and I told somebody this week, what well, was the chiropractor? I went to the chiropractor. The deer's beyond that. But I went to the chiropractor, and I said, well, she said, what's going on since last time? And I said, nothing special. I said, I did do something. I said, I've been in Pennsylvania over 30 years. And I said, I, did some, I had something happen to me this week. It's never happened before. She looked. She said, tell me about it. I said, I hit a deer. Been there, done that. Don't need to do it again. Not a good experience. Especially when I called back to the church and promised it to Mark. And two minutes before Mark got there, because I kept watching, every time a car would pass, I'd look in the headlights, and it was still there. Well, Mark pulls down there after us, flashing lights and all this business, and I said, well, did you see the deer? He said, I saw one walking in the ditch. <laughs> I said, you've got to be kidding me. So I only get my flashlight, went back down there, didn't see the deer anywhere. I said, well, we've walked, we've walked too far now. We've walked past where that deer was. He looked up in the field. He said, I see one in the field. These deer are crazy. <laughs> I mean, the way I hit that deer and fur went everywhere and all that kind of stuff, I, and the way it, true, when I first hit it, it wasn't dead. That's the part that's the worst. I'd rather hit the thing and have it just be dead. I, I just call it being a sportsman, but maybe you're a hunter and, or not a hunter and you still feel the same way. It's one thing for me to go and harvest one. It's another thing altogether to have one down like that and hurt. And I was upset that I didn't have something to put the deer down with. And then Bob Shirk reminded me that the game commission didn't change that part. They'll, they'll get you. So looking on the, inter, in the, on the Internet, and I guess he's right. Maybe it's better I didn't have something there to pop it with, because I surely would have. I can't stand to see something suffer like that. But I like something that Vance Hafner said. He said this, There's no devil in the first two chapters of the Bible. And there's no devil in the last two chapters of the Bible. Check it out. Thank God for a book that disposes of the devil. Amen. For this purpose was he manifested to destroy the works of the devil. He's going to get his. And he knows his days are numbered. That's why he gives everybody such a hard time. So in a sense, let's kind of conclude it this way, we've come full circle really because we're right back to the fundamental problem, which is sin. 
And the fundamental reason that Jesus came is about redemption and dealing with sin. And the fact is, folks, we think, need to think broader than just ourselves because Jesus Christ is going to destroy the works of the devil wherever they are. We tend to think just of ourselves, but you know, this world is a fallen world. It'll be renewed. All creation sings in a minor key. I was thinking a little bit this night, well, it's, it's sort of a takeoff of my message tonight, which I won't get into now, but I was thinking about those shepherds. You talk about a surprise. How would you like to have gone out there on just sort of a typical night and all of a sudden heard an angelic choir, the like unto which, and seen, an, and seen a vision of angels, the like unto which I don't know that you can find anywhere else in the Bible. I thought of maybe one case, and that was when Elisha was in the city and the Syrians surrounded the city. You remember that story? And the servant said, oh, what are we going to do? And Elisha just said, Lord, I pray that open his eyes. And the mountains were full of the angelic protective hosts. It's the only place I could think of that was anything like that. And I still think this was more. So all of those things, wherever the effects of the fall have gone. This is what Christ came to deal with. And Jesus begins that work when we're saved, in us personally. He continues it as we walk with him. And you know what? He, con he consummates or completes it when we see him. Look back at the beginning of the chapter. Beloved, now are we, verse 2, the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, we shall see him as he is. It's quite a salvation we have, isn't it? There's another song. I better stop here. There's another song. I don't know if you've heard this song or ever had this done in the church. If you ever get a quartet that can do this song, that's what you want. I have a recording of it. The old-fashioned revival, Our Quartet, used to sing this song. Rudy Atwood was the pianist. I'll tell you what, this is as good as it gets, too. When you can find somebody that writes a song and puts a melody with it that matches exactly what the message of the song, the song is called My Sins Are Gone. It was written by the name, a man by the name of Vandal. Here's what he says. You ask me why I'm happy. And, this, and the, the whole thing is a very happy type song. In fact, if you listen to the Gaithers sing it, you'll, <laughs> you'll get an extra shot. You ask me why I'm happy, so I'll just tell you why. Because my sins are gone. And when I meet the scoffer who asks me where they are, I say my sins are gone. They're underneath the blood of the cross of Calvary as far as darkness is from dawn. In the sea of God's forgetfulness, that's good enough for me. Praise God, my sins are gone. It was at the old-time altar where God came in my heart, and now my sins are gone. The Lord took full possession, the devil did depart. I'm glad my sins are gone. When Satan comes to tempt me and tries to make me doubt, I say my sins are gone. You got me into trouble, but Jesus got me out. I'm glad my sins are gone. 
I'm living now for Jesus. I'm happy night and day because my sins are gone. My Savior is filled, my soul is filled with music. With all my heart I say, I know my sins are gone. You know the song? Oh, you got to sing that sometime. That'll get that, you know, that, that'll just sort of, that'll just sort of get you going. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being happy and joyful in what Christ has done for us. This is where we are. Why Jesus came. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you that we can honestly say if we know Jesus Christ as personal Savior today, my sins are gone. They're underneath the blood of the cross of Calvary as far as darkness is from dawn. In the sea of God's forgetfulness, yes, that's good enough for me. Praise God, my sins are gone. Thank you, dear God. Thank you for the privilege of being a Christian. Thank you that sometimes we face difficult and hard days. Nevertheless, it never changes the deep-seated joy and privilege that we know are ours to belong to you and to be a part of this grand work of redemption, to know that we'll be a part of it in eternity, that we haven't even begun really to see a fraction of what it all involves. But we know it's in our future. And we thank you for that. Now bless us today as we go our separate ways. Give us a joyous Christmas season for those that we don't see after the service this morning. Watch over, bless, and keep them during this week as we uh, travel, as we have time with our family and our friends. May Christ be at the center of all those things. For we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. All right, so for closing song this morning, let's sing that page 314. Couldn't find those other ones. Need a chorus book for the other, but 314 tells.